This morning we're reading Philippians 1, 12 to 26, so flipping your Bibles or flipping your phones or push buttons, whatever. Starting um, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's been clear throughout the whole palace guard and everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defence of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does that matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm going to live on in the body, this will mean fruitful labour for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart to be with Christ, which is by far better, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I'll continue, um, I'll, I'll continue with all of you in the progress and joy in, my, in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Again, it feels like one of those old church buildings where you climb up into the pulpit. Another COVID weird thing. We used to have the lectern down on the floor here. We used to be nicely bunched in together. Those days will come. What we ask that as we think about this part of your word, and we pray that you would grow our confidence in the gospel of Jesus. Please help us to understand how it is that we are partners with each other in the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I reckon all sorts of different things can shake our faith in Jesus. All sorts of things can rock our trust in Jesus. It might be when you have doubts or questions, and rather than talk about those questions or pray about them, I would just let them go and we begin to drift. Or you might have made a strong start as a Christian, but you've kind of dropped off in reading your Bible, and so you're not feeding your faith, and you start to lose your confidence in the gospel. It can start with just being too busy, busy with the everyday things of life, preoccupied by the day-to-day necessities, maybe caring for little kids, maybe arguing with teenagers, maybe negotiating with adult kids, or it could be running around after your parents or having your parents run. All sorts of things can distract us from just thinking and living for Jesus in an appropriate way. We can lose focus. All sorts of things can rock our trust in Jesus. It might be that we come up against real challenges 
obstacles, difficulties. Or it could be that we have strong opposition against us. I don't know, but if your parents don't think that what you believe makes any sense, they might treat you as someone who's just going through a phase, you know, they'll get over it. That doesn't make it easy for us to continue to live with our trust in Jesus. Or it might be that um, your friends mock you for the fact that you go to church on Sunday morning or mock you because of what you believe. It could be that you actually get picked on and given a hard time because of what you believe. Maybe a hard time in the workplace or at school or at uni. All sorts of things can rock our faith in Jesus, make us have second thoughts and make us stop bearing fruit of the gospel in our lives. And I think because that's so true, I reckon all that makes Philippians an important part of the Bible for us to be looking at, an encouraging part of the Bible for us to be looking at, because the Apostle Paul, he writes to encourage the Philippian Christians to stand firm, to be unmoved. He wants them to conduct themselves, if you look at 1 verse 27, I think it's kind of the, the key verse in the book. He says in 1 verse 27, he wants them to conduct themselves in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. And if they are conducting themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, then they'll keep contending and striving, Paul's words, to the Philippians. This is the kind of stuff you can glean and put together just by reading Philippians and reading bits of Acts, maybe 1 Thessalonians as well, but you don't need a commentary to do this. You can read this for yourself from the pages of the Bible. Paul tells us that he's writing from Rome where he's in guard, under guard. So if you look at 1 verse 13, he talks about the palace guard. You look at the other end of this letter, when you look at 4 verse 22, he sends greetings from those who belong to Caesar's household. So there's Paul in Rome, under guard in Rome, writing to the Philippians a long way away, and he's saying he's under guard, but there's it's Caesar's household. Yeah, you get this picture, he's in Rome. And then, if you've been reading through your Bible, you realise as you look through the back end of the book of Acts, as Luke records, gives the account of Paul's missionary journeys, you realise this is towards the end of Acts. Luke tells us about it. Um, Paul's been in Rome for some time. He's in Rome because he's appealed to Caesar. He's appealed to Caesar because of what began as opposition from the Jews back in Jerusalem. But he's under guard because of his preaching of the gospel. That's the bottom line. Um, Paul and the Philippians, they have a shared past, a shared experience in the past. I'm going to read a little bit from Acts chapter 16. You can look it up in your own time. But when you look at Acts chapter 16, you'll see some of these places that are on the screen, I hope. Um, this is how Paul brought the gospel to Philippi. So in Acts chapter 16 from verse 6, Paul and his companions travelled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word of God in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to, so they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul and his, had a vision of a man of Macedonia. If you can see on the map, Philippi, it's there in Macedonia. Um, standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. And after Paul had seen the vision, he got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Luke includes himself in this narrative called us because Luke's writing and he's there. Verse 11 of chapter 16, So from Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there we travelled to Philippi. And Luke adds, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there for a few days. That little comment about 
Philippi being a Roman colony and a leading city in the area, it all helps you start to understand these Philippians that Paul's writing to. As you keep on reading through Acts, Roman citizenship is a big deal for these people, these Philippians. And as Paul, in Philippians, when he talks to them about their citizenship as Christians, he likens it to citizenship in heaven. He's got this Roman idea of citizen in the background. So understanding this bit in Acts helps us understand what we read in Philippians. You keep reading through Acts chapter 16, and, and Luke tells us how they started preaching the gospel. Um, in, Luke, in Acts chapter 16, verse 13, on the Sabbath day, Luke tells us that Paul and his mission partners, they headed down to the river, the place where people would pray, hoping to meet people who would be willing to talk about God there. And that's what they did. They met some women there and shared the gospel with them. And a lady called Lydia became a Christian, and her whole household became Christians in Acts 16, verse 15. Um, while there was a positive response to the gospel, there was also plenty of opposition. And Luke, the next thing he tells us is that Another day on the way down to that place by the river, this slave girl was following Paul around, calling out things after him because of the spirit that was in her. She was someone who she had, she was being used as a slave. Her owners were making money from her as a fortune teller. Paul turns around and casts the spirit out of her. Um, and so in 16 verse 19, when the owners realised their hope of making money was gone, they grabbed Paul and Silas and dragged them to the authorities. Paul and Silas get whipped beaten and thrown into prison. Can you just imagine this really happening in, in our area? Like, can you imagine being Lydia? Your whole household just became Christians, you're new believers, and the person who shared the gospel with you has just been whipped and thrown into prison. There's a massive impact here. That night in prison, Paul and Silas, I don't know, they meant that the, the doors of the prison were open, their chains came off. And so the Roman jailer, when he sees all this, he's scared for his life attempts to take his life. But Paul says, it's okay, we're all here, and goes on to share the gospel with this jailer. And then this man and his whole household became believers. And so out of this seemingly impossible situation, Paul shares the gospel yet again, and the gospel continues to bear fruit. This is all the background to this letter to the Philippians. They've seen all this stuff happen. The amazing way the gospel just keeps growing, even against that sort of opposition, Next day, the authorities, they ordered Paul and Silas to be released, and at that point, um, um, Paul declares his Roman citizenship. You've beaten a Roman citizen, and they try to cover all up, and he, and they move to Thessalonica. And if you're reading through Acts, you come to Acts chapter 17, you can remember what happened in Thessalonica, it's no better. They ran up, the Jews ran up grumpy characters in the marketplace and drive them out of town. This is a very rough and bumpy ride as they share the gospel through Macedonia. Um, when you come to Acts chapter 20, he's told there, there was another visit to Philippi, but it sounds like just a passing visit, so we don't have much more to add to this background there. But then if you have a look at the letter that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, look at how he reflects on these times. So 1 Thessalonians 2, you know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell his gospel in the face of strong opposition. Look at how he reflects back on these times. It helps you appreciate what we read in Philippians. Despite a horribly bumpy start, a church grows up in Philippi, a bunch of Christians seeking to live for God. 
Um, if you look at the last chapter in Philippians, look at how these young Christians in Philippi supported the missionary Paul. So Philippians 4 verse 14, Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of our acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once. When a fantastic picture. Um, they've been brought together by the truth of the gospel despite opposition, despite challenges. And now Paul's writing to feels the need to write to the Philippians in order to encourage them to stand firm, 1 verse 27, to keep contending for the faith of the gospel. Um, it could be that Paul wants to send him back home. Um, and this letter, as you think about it, it's written out of trials and challenges. It's written in a climate of 1 verse 27, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Um, some of what you've seen happen in Acts chapter 16 may help you appreciate what might happen. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way of those who oppose you. If the Philippians focus on conducting themselves in a manner that's worthy of the gospel, well, then they will be contending, and Paul will know that they're firm and standing firm in the Lord. And you hear a little echo of that in 4 verse 1. He wants them to stand firm in the Lord. So with that kind of background to the letter, to get your head around what we're looking at, let's have a look at what he actually writes. So as the, as the Apostle Paul, or all God's saints in Philippi, um, we talk about Paul writing this letter, Paul doing this, Paul doing that, but here we discover actually Timothy is there with him. He's his mission partner. Um, Paul uh, calls himself and Timothy, uh, actually Timothy, if you look ahead at 2 verse 19, Paul says he's hoping to send Timothy to Philippi as well. It could be that um, Timothy's there with a path of artists taking this letter back to them, maybe. But look at verse 1 again. Paul calls himself and Timothy, both of them, he calls himself servants, and the better translation is slaves. Slaves of Christ Jesus. Slaves of Jesus. I think we need to be careful as we read this today that we don't want to read our understanding of what slavery is into the passage. I think the key thing about slavery here is that they're not free to do what they want to do. They do what Jesus wants them to do. I think that's the key part of it. Um, Paul and Timothy, um, they serve Christ. They serve Jesus. Um, in contrast, Paul addresses the Philippians as saints. The NIV translates God's holy people, but the word is saints. It's like Paul, even in this very carefully chosen words in the beginning of this letter, he's putting himself down almost and building them up. And you'll see that continue through the letter as he serves them, wants to build them up. Um, verse 1 is very carefully worded. And then verse 2, there's that kind of um, Paul's standard grace and peace type reading. Then you come to verse 3, 1 verse 3, Paul says thanks, uh, he, that he thanks God constantly for them. He's genuinely saying this. He constantly thanks God for these Philippian Christians, the way that they're standing firm, I imagine, and the way they became Christian, all that. But in verse 4, he says, when he prays, he remembers them with joy. And then in verse 5, he says, because of their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, from that day they went down to the river and shared the gospel with Lydia until now. He, when he thinks of them, he prays with joy, giving thanks for them and their partnership in the gospel. 
Um, if you look again at 1 verse, 15, uh, 1 verse 5, rather, the word that our NIV translates partner, they've done that for a reason. The word behind it is actually the word fellowship. They fellowship in the gospel together. Despite all the challenges they faced, they continue and will continue to face, Paul, um, who's under arrest in Rome, and the Philippians, if you look ahead in 1 verse 28, with their own opposition, they continue to fellowship and partner in the gospel. Um, then, in 1 verse 6, Paul says he has confidence that God will continue to work in them until Jesus returns. He's reassuring them, God's at work in you. He will keep working until Jesus returns. Verse 7, that's mistranslated, um, even in the ESV, because he actually says, it's right for me to think this way about you. Not, it's right for me to feel this way about you. That comes later in verse 8. It's right for me to think about you this way. His confidence doesn't come from his feelings about them, but from knowing, verse 6, that God is at work in them and God will finish that work. And so he has confidence. In verse 8, his emotions do come into it. He longs for them with the affection that comes from Christ. But look again at verse 7. He says there that they share in God's grace with him. There's that fellowship in the gospel, that partnership in the gospel, sharing in God's grace, working together for the cause of the gospel. And you'll see this partnership language through this letter, this whole idea of being in fellowship in the gospel. There's the financial partnership in uh, chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, as the Philippians give to, to see Paul continue his mission. Um, the Philippians, they've sent Epaphroditus to Paul to provide for his needs, to care for him. There's that kind of partnership. There's Paul wanting to send Timothy the other way to build them up. This is a fellowship in the gospel that draws them together with a common purpose. And as we came through this passage in growth group, looking at those growth group Bible studies, it's got me thinking about the way I've been using the word fellowship. When I talk about fellowship, I usually just think of the time you spend together, the relationship. So I might have said any number of times, we've finished the formal part of church, but we'll keep fellowshipping together over morning tea because you interact. But that's not the way Paul's using the word here. He's talking about more of a partnership idea, and that's why the NIV translates it that way. It's the cause, it's the goal that they're fellowshipping in. It's the gospel that they're fellowshipping in. That's what's holding them together. And as they focus on that goal, as they focus on sharing the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, even against opposition, that's the thing that strengthens their bonds, their fellowship, their fellowshipping in the gospel. And so as you read through Philippians, seek to live for the gospel of Jesus. As we seek to share the gospel, we are in partnership together, and that's the thing that will draw us together, despite all our differences and all our quirks and all that. Um, I reckon we, we should think about this a little bit more. I mean, we encourage you to become formal members of church, to have your membership with us, because we need that in order to have things like congregational meeting. But that sort of membership is a fairly passive thing. You can become a member and just vote at meetings, at job done. This fellowship language, though, this is active. This is us participating together, working together for the same goal. And maybe that's the way we should think about being part of our church together. Yeah, sure, we need formal membership, but we want to all be partners, whether we're communicant members or not. I think we can think, keep thinking about these things. Another challenge for us in this part of the passage is the way that Paul prays. We've already seen a little bit, little bit of it in 1 verse 3. He prays in 1 verse 3 because of their partnership in the gospel. He prays that their love would abound more and more and that as their love's abounding more and more, it would be shaped by knowledge and insight. Knowledge and insight that I take it comes from their understanding of the gospel and God's plans and God's purposes. 
And in verse 10, he prays the Philippians will be blameless on the day of Jesus, that Jesus returns, kind of filled with all the fruit that comes from Jesus' righteousness, so that on when Jesus returns, they're standing there blameless. It's a hugely encouraging prayer that he prays for them. And that's the kind of prayer we should be praying for each other as gospel partners, that our love would abound more and more with knowledge and insight as we seek to stand righteous on the last day because of everything Jesus has done. Um, So I reckon let's allow the way Paul thinks about fellowship or partnership, the way he prays, let's allow that to shape us and our prayers. So Paul writes to encourage his uh, the Philippians to stand firm. He shares his fellow, his joyful prayer for his partners in the gospel. As you look at verses 12 to 18, you might think, wow, this Paul is just an optimist, you know, he's a glass half full type person. But that's quite what's happening. It's not that he's an optimist. Um, Paul, he's been arrested, he's in, he was in prison, he was tried, he was transported, he was shipwrecked, he's now under guard in Rome. All that's happened, and that I think would be enough for me to go, I retire, I quit. But for Paul, he can still see opportunities to proclaim the gospel. And when the Philippians heard that Paul was off to Rome for trial, they might have lost heart. But here's Paul saying, no, 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 this is for the good. Um, Paul finds three ways to be positive in these verses. The first positive is that the gospel is now rattling around the halls of Caesar's palace. So if you look at 12, verse 12, one, word, one verse 12. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am. So you're in the workplace, um, your team gets divided up for some site visits, you get paired up with someone. Wouldn't it be good if that person's going, I don't want to go with him. He'll kick to all palace guard. You can imagine not wanting to be rusted on his cell or his home. Paul says he can see that being placed under guard has second positive in Sarah verse 14. And because of my chains... Most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. So his suffering, what Paul's been going through, what they've heard that he's going through, has actually made people more brave to talk about the gospel. It does work that way, doesn't it? You hear about um, Christians being persecuted for, for their belief and it kind of makes you think, yeah, we haven't got it too bad. It does embolden you. Even as you read about Paul this time later, it makes you do a rethink, doesn't it? Makes you a bit more confident to get out there and be a bit more upfront about what you believe. Um, as partners in the gospel, we can encourage each other in that. So Paul, he writes to encourage his partners in the gospel on all the challenges that have been thrown at their gospel work. Um, they see he's in chains, he's saying, actually, it's for good. And it's even making others be inspired and motivated. And the third positive perspective he gives is a little bit more tricky to unravel because I don't feel like we've got all the information we need to understand exactly what's happening. But I think the main point's clear. So if you look at verse 15, it's true that some preach Christ, I take it some of these ones who are emboldened to preach the gospel, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter, the ones who preach out of goodwill, do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defence of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, maybe playing down the fact that he's in prison for the gospel while I'm in chains. You kind of look at this and try to get your head behind it and understand what's going on. The first half makes good sense. The second half's a bit more difficult. It could be that there's people saying that that Paul, he's in prison because of embezzlement, or he's in prison. They could have been making up reasons why he's in prison. I don't know. Um, I don't know. 
I'm guessing. The thing is, Paul can overlook these people who have wrong motives because the result of their little bit twisted work is that the gospel is being preached. Um, perhaps they're preaching the gospel out of some sort of competition with Paul, thinking that they're drumming up more responses, more believers. They've got a bigger church. They've got better music at their church. They've got a better morning tea. Um, they've got people in their church who are up there, important people. They've got connections into um, the authorities that, rather than a prisoner among their nets. I think it's all true. Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. Paul has this positive attitude. The gospel's getting out there. He doesn't need to worry about this little bit of competition. As I kind of think about you know, how does that situation maybe cut across us and what we experience, I wonder whether it might be a little bit similar, um, as I've hinted at, with our situation where you have churches that compete with each other or ministers to their gospel, gospel work. It wasn't very um, He wasn't disheartened by all this stuff being messed up. He could actually be joyful. It runs through all these verses. Um, Paul's attitude to to the spread of the gospel, it ought to be, I think, a huge encouragement to us as well as we look at it. We should be massively encouraged. And then in the final part of the passage, I think what he does is he expresses his resolve to do everything for Christ and his gospel, to do everything. His whole life is for Jesus and the gospel. So if you look at verse 18, looked at this again, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this I rejoice. Yes, and I continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. See his confidence that he will be delivered, and as we look back at history, we think that he wasn't. I think the point is, for Paul, deliverance may be to be taken to be with Jesus, delivered from prison that way. But he's confident. Whatever happens, he will be delivered from this situation. As you read on, I think he counts death as possibly deliverance as well. And whether his time in prison finishes with his release will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. I can't really imagine being in that situation. I don't think you probably could either. I mean, just think about it. Being able to say that, or to say verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Everything he lives for is Jesus. And if he dies, well, that's not a bad thing either. He's with Jesus. And he goes on in verse 22, if I am to go on living in this body, this will mean fruitful labour for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to, to, to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. So this desire to serve them and build them up that leads you back to the very way he started this letter by calling himself a slave of Christ and calling them saints. I think the growth through Bible studies, again, were helpful as we learned through this part of the passage. Um, the studies get us to, got us to think about what it means to be free. Paul's free. He is free to go on serving God, serving Jesus, despite his chains. Um, we can let our troubles and our challenges and all the things 
that we come up against, we can let it surround us and get us down. But if we could be a little bit more like Paul, we'd be less thinking about how am I going to get out of this and more thinking about how am I going to be godly where God's put me now? It's a different perspective, isn't it? Different perspective on life. And when you think about it that way, it will just become opportunities to grow. The things that are thrown at us give us opportunities to show that we trust in Jesus and to grow in our trust in Jesus. When we think like Paul, um, when we think of ourselves as partners in the gospel, it just changes the way you see the world, the way you see the challenges. Our, um, our only real slavery is our slavery to Jesus. We are bound to him. We want to do what he wants us to do, which takes you back to 1 verse 1. So we are firm in the faith, and to do that, he, he shares his prayer with them, his prayer for his, his partners in the gospel. He shares his positive perspective on all the challenges to their gospel work. He expresses his resolve to do everything for Jesus and the gospel. And as we keep working our way through Philippians, I reckon let's let it shape the way we think of ourselves as being in fellowship for the gospel, in partnership for the gospel. I'm going to pray for us, and next week we'll take up the next bit of this letter. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the work that you've begun in each of us. We thank you for forgiveness and new life. Lord, we ask that you would help us to keep growing in trusting Jesus, not to be rocked by other things. Please, would you help us to understand the freedom that we have as your slaves, freedom in every situation to live for you and to be godly. Lord, please grow our love and shape our love with knowledge and insight that comes from the gospel. And Lord, please keep reassuring us with the righteousness that Jesus has won for us. Please keep working in us so that we are blameless on the day that Jesus returns. And we ask that you would use us, just as you used Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus and Lydia and the unknown jailer. Lord, please use us as partners in the gospel to see your kingdom grow. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.